story, and then I want you to tell me who is benefiting the most in this story. I'm going to start a small timer before we do that, though, because I, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, there are three friends. These three friends, they all know each other. You could consider them best friends. They all love each other, and they're all hungry to know each other better. Let's give you some backstory, some context. They all meet each other at college, in university. They start to get to know each other pretty well. They're roommates for a while, so they get to know each other a lot better then. But it's only for one year. They all go their separate ways for their senior year into different you know, housing situations and whatnot. And they lose contact a little bit, but they still, like, they, they're in a group chat together, right? The last time the group chat was hit up was about three months ago. But they're like, man, but we're committed to this. So they try to find ways to stay connected. Y'all know what this feels like. Y'all know exactly that feeling. They're like, y'all want to do a fantasy football league? And it's like, there's only three of us, guys. You know, like, they, they're like, oh, do y'all want to watch this together? And it's like, uh, then one of them doesn't like it. And then the other two are talking, but the third one's like, uh, yeah, I totally watched it. What'd you think? It's good. They didn't watch it. All that fighting to stay friends, fighting, fighting to, to stay close. One of them dies. One of them passes away, and now there's only two left. And there's a great Christian thinker and writer who alludes to this idea. And if you know his thoughts, then you may know where this is going. But those of you that don't know his thoughts, the question then becomes, does that give the two space to become closer? Are they going to get closer now? Do they get more of each other because the third is gone? Do they get more of each other because there's not a third they have to share with? The thought from the Christian thinker's name, his name is C.S. Lewis, he gave a resounding no, that that is, not the, that is not the situation. That when the third dies, in fact, there's less to be shared between the two because the third brought out something from the two that the two can't bring out of each other, only the third possibly could. And while I think this specific circumstance, this specific situation, it, it can be easy, and I think, to look and see with the drasticness of someone dying, exactly what that looks like, and to arrive at that answer. But, but if I'm being honest, when it comes to loving each other, and the third person not being you, but the third person being God. When it comes to loving others, that can be a little tricky. It's a little trickier to get to the place of saying, yeah, I need the third one in order to love the other better. It's actually much harder. And sometimes I, I understand. Some of you have kids. And I'll be very honest. Like, my kids drive me to basically be like, man, I desperately need you. But then there are also times where, like, I want my kid for myself. Like, I want them for myself. Even this week, last week, I should say, my kid, my oldest daughter, started school. And when she started school, she came and she started telling about her friends. And I was like, I don't care about them friends. This is you and daddy time. We're on a daddy-daughter date. I don't care about them. And then I was like, tell me more about your friends. Like, the dude, the dude texted me, and like, the show is good. I was like, tell me more about Katie. <laughs> <laughs> And yet, the invitation that we have from Scripture is that to love one another, when we invite the idea 
of, of, of the third in, particularly when that third is God, we're empowered to love each other really well. And it actually stops something that's, I think, really important, which is it stops us from worshiping neighbor. Because realistically, it's really challenging to navigate the idea of loving neighbor and not worshiping neighbor. And yet when we go into uh, kind of like a main idea for today, uh, I would say that the main idea of the text that we're going to look at is loving your neighbor isn't worshiping your neighbor. Right now we're talking through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really powerful in terms of it giving us a vision. The first week we said it's two things that we read. First, it is that we read the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, but I think the rest of it as well, uh, as a vision for who we're meant to be. That we want to be those who are thirsting and hungering. Uh, hung, I don't know if hungering is a word, but uh, that, that are thirsting and are hungry for righteousness, right? Like we want to be those who are merciful. We want to be those uh, who are meek and gentle and humble. And so it's a vision, but then we also have a declaration of good news in that Jesus has come and he is the one who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He is the merciful person. Last week, we also talked about being salt and light in the earth. And, and we said we want to be salt and light. It's a vision for our lives. I, I want to be salt and light. That he's talking to you and me. And he's saying salt is a blessing like in every, pretty much every moment of life in these days. Like, like salt was used to preserve food. It was used in cuts to disinfect them. Uh, somebody was like, you use salt to put out fire or to melt ice. And I was like, I've never heard of that before. I'm a Texas boy. I've never heard of that before, right? But you use salt so much. And, and Jesus is, in essence, giving us a vision for our lives, saying, I want you to be a blessing to others almost in every way, the way salt is a blessing to the community and the people around you, right? That, that saying salt of the earth doesn't mean salt that's taken from the earth. The actual Greek, the way it's structured, is salt applied to the earth. I want you to be the salt applied to the earth as a blessing for the world around you. But then we also said that Jesus comes in, and, and that's a vision for who we want to be, but it's also good news because Jesus is the salt of the earth. That he fulfills that not just in other people's lives, but before you go out and become the salt of the earth, he first becomes the salt of your earth. He becomes the salt of your life. He's the first one that actually comes in and becomes a blessing to you. And from there, right, we're invited out to, to go be a blessing, to love our neighbor. But the thing is, just after that, Jesus does come to this place in the Sermon on the Mount where, where it, there's a little tension thrown in there. Because if, you, if I tell you, love your neighbor, 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 and then you go out and start loving your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, I guarantee you at some point what's going to happen is that without being anchored and tethered, without some boundaries, without some wisdom to that, we love our neighbor, love our neighbor, love our neighbor, and then easily we can become, start worshiping our neighbor, worshiping our neighbor, worshiping our neighbor. Because what we do for them and how they respond to it can start to become such a huge voice and such a huge impact on our lives that it can start to supplant the idea of who God is in our lives. And this is actually where we pick up in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're picking up in, in six, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And uh, what we're going to do here real quick is we are going to read the text, and then I want to jump in and kind of work through it for just a second. We're going to read a lot of text right now. It's verse 1. We're going to stop at 21, so it's going to be quite a bit. But I want you to read along with me, and then I, I promise you, I promise you, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say what? All right, all right. Shout out, shout out to, my, to my white brothers and sisters for that one. That's a good one. And we're going we're gonna to do it because it's a banger, all right? So, um, starting in verse 1, uh, Matthew 6 continues uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. 
Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, you, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask them. Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, that's a lot of text, okay? Let's go, fam. <laughs> I need that. This is the word of the Lord. I'm telling you, y'all just need to get me in the rhythm because I really do value that. I, I like, I, I, I've heard it in so many churches in the past. i like, bro, that's a banger. I didn't grow up like that. So I need y'all to remind me, okay? So thank you. Shout out. Uh, lots of text going on here. All right, lots of text. But what's happening? Okay, we just read 21 verses and it sounds like all kinds of stuff is going on. We're going to nerd out for all of for four minutes. Give me four minutes to just be a super nerd, and then we're, gonna just, just, we're just going to come in after that. So if we really want to know what's happening here, we have to understand it within a bigger thing of what we call discourse. And so Matthew is known for se- several instances of what this discourse is called, and these are big blocks of Jesus' teaching. And one of these discourses, it's almost like a sub-discourse, is happening right now. We're actually in the middle of this discourse right now. And it starts with the last verse that we ended on last week. The last verse of last week actually is the start of this section of discourse. Matthew 5.20, if you remember that, uh, last week we didn't touch on it because I knew it was going to pick it back up this week. And it actually says your righteousness needs to surpass that of the righteousness of the Pharisees. It has to surpass that if you want to even have the kingdom of heaven. And then from there what happens is he goes through the next several verses, the next several chapters, breaking some things down. And so right from there he goes into 21 through 48 in Matthew chapter 5 and he says... See, the righteousness that I want you to have is more than the Pharisees because it's the righteousness of heart. And this is actually the section where he goes through a lot of the Ten Commandments and says, you've heard it said that the Ten Commandments commands you to do this with your hands. 
but I say it's actually about your heart. So he takes the idea of commanding actions and he points it towards the heart, and that is a, is a flow through from saying, hey, your righteousness needs to be more than the Pharisees. It needs to be more than what they do. They do things for show. If you didn't know this, the word hypocrites here, in all that we just read, is an allusion not to whatever you imagine as hypocrites. It's an allusion to a specific group of people, and that is the Pharisees. They pray on the corner for everyone to see. They look gloomy while they fast. When they give, they blow a trumpet before them. I've never, that, that's weird. But they, they do all that, and they're the hypocrites. And I want your righteousness to be more than them. In fact, I want it to be a righteousness that comes from your heart. And by righteousness, I mean I want you to have a love for God and a love for others that's rooted in, in like enjoying God, enjoying me. Not to earn favor, not to earn points, but to enjoy me. And that comes from enjoying me. And it's exactly where he ends up going after this, where we are. In Matthew 6, 1 through 21, he then continues on to say, you know what? Because the thing is, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, what they do is they do things so that they can be seen. They garner what we would describe as the favor of people, right? This idea of they garner the praises, they garner the, the thumbs up, the approval of the people around them. And what they do is actually aimed at gaining that. It's not aimed at gaining me. It doesn't even come from enjoying me. It's actually rooted in them trying to gain the approval of the people that are in front of them, that are watching them. And that's all that this is about for them. But I don't want you to actually be that way. I want you to not gain the rewards from the people around you. I want you to gain the rewards from your Father in heaven. So that's what he, he, he goes here. And then that's why when we conclude in verse 21, we end up seeing, and so I want you to, oh man, I missed the N in a, a thing. Um, I want you not to, to store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather I want you to store up treasures in heaven. And so this is actually a big old long chunk of text that goes from Matthew 5.20 that starts almost near the end of where we picked up last week or where we finished last week. And then it goes all the way through to 6.21. And it's all one big idea that connects to one thing. I want you to have like a genuine faith. I want you to have a genuine affection and love for me. I don't want you to say, hey, you've heard it said that in the Ten Commandments, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you do, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll get X, Y, and Z. I want you to actually love me and want to be faithful to your spouse because you love me and want to be faithful to your parents and respect them and love them, not because there's a blessing associated with it, which is what he alludes to in, in the Sermon on the Mount in, in this section right here, but because you actually are are loving me. I want you to love me, and from there, I want you to obey me. And then likewise, when you start to serve and love other people, I don't want you to do it so that you can have their voice telling you you're great. I want you to listen to my voice saying I love you. I want you to listen to my voice saying well done. I want you to listen to my voice saying good job, right? That's the voice I want you to be valuing. And, and so then from here, he breaks it down in this section. If we really take a look, he breaks it down into a couple of more more sections from here, right? So he, he says, all right, if I want you to gather your rewards from heaven, I want you to do it. In, and he chooses these three ways to kind of show us that in charitable giving, there are people that do it just for the sake of seeing uh, other people look at them and be like, wow, you're so generous. You're like the most generous person I've ever seen. So much so that according to Jesus in Matthew, they blow a trumpet when they do it. Again, I don't know what that's about. That's super weird. It low-key made me think of like the YouTubers that be out there giving out stuff, and then they're like, I'm going to post this video because it's going to get mad views. It's like, okay, that's a little off, but whatever. So he says, hey, in charitable giving, I don't want you to do it for the sake of people looking at you and saying you're so generous. 
but rather I want you to do it and return to me and receive a, a reward from your heavenly Father. He then from there goes into prayer and he says, hey, uh, when you pray, I don't want you to do it on the corners, out loud. I don't want you to do it with a string of long words. Uh, I don't want you to do it like the Gentiles who actually use like a lot of, of, of rambling in order to kind of try to earn this sort of like religious favor. I just want you to do it in secret. I just want you to do it by yourself. And the thing is, that's not saying I don't want you to, to use, I don't want you to have a good vocabulary. What it was saying was that the prayers of the Pharisees were oftentimes an incredibly, uh, were a set of like very scripted ideas and as they scripted out these ideas, these were ideas that were assumed to be kind of like uh, words that could garner the favor of God in order to leverage something against God. An invocation, if you will. Right? This idea of saying, hey, I don't want you to, to try and be an invocation, try and invoke me and to demand that I do something. I want you to just go to your kind of private place with me. And I want you to pray. I want you to talk to me. And he finishes by saying, I don't want you to fast for public. I don't want you to fast in in front of everybody and be like, I'm so hungry. But rather, I, I, I want you to go and I want you to fast and I want you to, to come to me. And in each one of these things, if you come to me, you'll receive experience with me. Right? You'll become intimate with me. The reward will be me and I'll give you, I will give you me and what comes with me. But if you don't come to me and you're only living your life for the sake of what others think of you, right? you've already received your reward, you've already received what you're after. And that all this is pointing to one simple idea in, in this text, and it's the word that's used over and over again. It's the idea of hypocrisy. But it's hypocrisy in a certain way. Because the thing is, hypocrisy, when we think of it, oftentimes means being something or acting like something that we're not. Right? You kind of hear people throw around ideas like you two-faced. And two-faced is like being like a hypocrite. You act one way, but you really live another. Right? And, and we kind of see this, and the church has actually been a... a pretty good example of this uh, for a long time, because you've had pastors that'll be like, hey, the Lord will bless you if you give me X, Y, and Z amounts of money. Uh, and so they be getting a lot of money, they own a jet, and then people don't be blessed, but then they also, like the pastor will be getting in trouble for like embezzling money. Or there'll be like this sense of like, hey, you know, I, I want you, there's oftentimes, and you watch various types of church culture and expressions and denominations, and there's oftentimes this sort of like, there can be a very demanding demeanor and disposition and tone, and then it'll later on, you come out to find that the same person that was having that tone is also like being sexually immoral in some way. And it kind of makes you go, hey, you were saying one thing. You were even demanding me to be one thing. And in reality, you were just not that thing. And here's, the, here's what's challenging about this text. That is not what's happening here. That's not what's going on here. For all intents and purposes, if you were to evaluate the life of a Pharisee, if you were to evaluate the life of the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, you would not see a contradiction in their life. You would see, wow, they tell me I have to be one way, and these jokers be living that mug out real straight. Like, they are real straight with it. It's it's rather incredible. I mean, these are people that would memorize, I mean, there's some that, that put it out there and they're confident about it, and I'm not smart enough to know whether this is true or not, but that they would memorize the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. they just have it on lock. Just be like, yo, I got it up here. Because they would have just spent from their childhood up until their adult years just memorizing the whole thing. Which is a part of the reason why Paul is really, really good at taking like these Old Testament stories and bringing them into the new future 
bring them into the new covenant and being like, here's how Jesus fits into this. Because he spent his whole life just memorizing this book. In fact, Paul himself, in alluding to the law, he's the one that says, according to the law, according to the Jewish law, the Hebrew religious law, I don't find any fault in myself. And then he says, but, but God might, right? So I, I go to him. He's my judge, not me. Because if I looked at myself according to the law, I have no guilt. That's how they lived. And so what about that is hypocritical? What about that is hypocritical? What about that is acting one way, behaving another? It's, it's not that type of hypocrisy. The type of hypocrisy that's being alluded to here is a type of hypocrisy that may act all the right ways, but is still somehow doing it for all the wrong reasons. And the worst specific way is that it's, it's the kind of actions and the kind of heart that uses God for gain in another way. So I want to put in context the fact that all these individuals, right, all these individuals, the, 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 the Sadducees, the Pharisees, these individuals, they're doing godly things. I want you to hear me. They're not not giving to the poor. They're giving to the poor. They are praying. In fact, their prayers are probably much longer and much more theologically rich than your prayers. They're fasting, and they're killing the fasting game. They're killing the fasting game. These jokers ain't eight, and I don't know how long, right? Like, they're, they're fasting. They're doing all the things that we would probably look at and go, man, I aspire to be like that. Because according to your actions, you're displaying so much godly practice, so much godly desire, so much godly action, that if I were to look at you from the outside, I would probably look and be like, man, I wish I could be like that. And yet when Jesus looks at them, he says, you're like, you're like a brood of vipers. You're hypocrites. You're like actors because you do everything that you would assume makes you be in love with God. But all the things that other people think makes other people think you love God deep in the intricacies of your heart. You're not building a kingdom with God on the at the center of it, on the throne of it. You're building a kingdom with your own reputation on the throne of it. Your reward is not him. Your reward is just the feedback you get from someone being like, wow, they're so generous. That's what you've constructed. The kingdom of your heart, after all of these godly actions, you use the Bible, you use prayer, you use fasting, you actually use all the very things that God has given you in order to connect back to him and to be intimate with him and to be personal with him and to know him and to love him. And you try to use it in order to construct a kingdom that, that has you on the throne. It makes you the center of attention. And the thing is, friends, from here, there's a ripple effect. I mean, like, if, you know, if, don't, don't stone me, but like, it's like a big bang of effects. It really is. Because the moment that happens, the moment you are at the center or the throne of the kingdom of your heart, that's the very moment that all of a sudden your identity is no longer built on God, it's built on you. If, if it's built on what you've done or what you failed to do, that's the moment that the voices you believe are not God's voice, but instead it's the voice of everyone that says you're doing good or you could give a little more. It's everything about your life. It's not even about who does God say that I should be with? What does God say I should do? What does God say my life should look like? It's what do you say that? What do you say that I should, what do you say that I should? Now, my, 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 
it starts with the simple idea of saying, hey, I'm going to pray differently, but it ends with a corrupt and broken structure that's built on every little whimsical feeling and idea that someone else has, that this person has, and the next person that is able to come in and supplant the person before whose value you, whose opinion you were valuing is now just the next person in line that you want to impress. And so all of a sudden, you're no longer loving your neighbor, but you're treating them like crap because they're just inserted pieces of equipment to try and give you what you want, and they're throwaway pieces because if I get what I need from you, I can throw you away and move on to the next one, insert the next one, get what I need from them, throw them away and insert the next one. And it just creates a, a cycle of selfishness. Where no longer do you love neighbor, bro, you don't even love God. You just love you. And you pray and you fast and you give. And then I'm going I'm, to go real close to home here. And you preach and you sing and you play and you serve, and you read, and you attend church events, and you sit here in this rather uncomfortable blue chair, not for him and not for others, but just for you. Just for you. And this is Jesus' warning. It's his warning to us. Because what he's saying is that whole way of life that whole way of life, it's just as destructive as all the sinful patterns that have existed before it. It's just that this one, you know, to, to, borrow a, to borrow a phrase that was made famous in recent political discussions, it's just putting lipstick on a pig and the lipstick is just religious behavior. It's just Christian behavior. The lipstick is just reading the Bible. The lipstick is just praying. And this is, a, this is a solemn warning. I'm being honest with you. This is a solemn warning. This should scare you. It scares me. I don't want to be this. Because the vision that Jesus is giving us in the Sermon on the Mount for the world that he's creating through the work on the cross is a beautiful world that's redeemed through the love that comes from him, through him, uh, through us, and to others right? It's this restoration and redeeming work of the world. And he stops here in the middle to say, I don't want you to be like them. Because the way they behave, the hypocrites, the, 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 the people who would use me, the people who would use me, they make people think that it's for me, but really they just continue the patterns of destruction that sin causes. They just continue to use people. They continue to hurt people. They continue to make people objects that can be thrown around and discarded and inserted into their little corrupt and weird system of self-approval and self-affirmation instead of seeing them as the beautiful creatures that are made in my image, that they're called to love and they're called to serve and they're called to care for, that they're called to build up, that they're called to submit to and, and, and build up the same way I have submitted to them and, and built them up. Like, that's the vision that Jesus has, and he's taking a second to give us a solemn warning that just because you behave like this doesn't mean you're any different than the sinful patterns of the world that hurt people. And that makes us stop, and it should, it really should make us stop and look at every single part of our life and go, what is the motivation behind this? And if that sounds exhausting to you, friend, I'm going to be honest with you, it sounds exhausting to me too. I'm not sitting here being like, oh, yeah, you should do It's like, man, that's hard. That's why this is challenging. That's why this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is challenging. 
because it actually looks at us and says, I want you to evaluate every part of your heart. And every part that is actually outside of me is, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say it strongly, and I hope you can see what I'm saying. Every part that's not for me, every part that's not to me is against me. Because I promise you, even if you're loving someone really well, if there's this trickle or cycle of sinfulness behind it, there is a destination at the end of that road that will be hurtful. And it may produce a lot of beautiful things too. I'm not saying that, that there are, because like, you're not going to catch me if you're being like, oh, atheists are bad people. I know some atheists that are better people than me. And I know some atheists that are better people than you. But what I am saying is that Jesus is asking us, what is the motivation of your heart? Because the world that I'm building and the world that I'm inviting you into is one that's shaped by me, but that doesn't happen until the motivations of your heart are shaped by me. And so that's what's going on here. Hypocrisy. And it's really scary. But here's the thing. When we ask the question, well, then how do I stop this? Because you may look at your heart, and I may look at my heart, and be like, fam, i got to be honest with you. I do not know how to stop this. I don't know how to change. And that's where I think we have to read, not in between the lines, but I think we need to read the other side of what Jesus is saying in this. What does that mean? It means I think from this, this text, we also get a beautiful vision of the idea of like intimacy. We get a beautiful vision of the idea of intimacy. What do I mean by that? I mean, for every negative statement in this section of text, there's a positive statement. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't give so ever can see. Rather, give to the poor and then come and receive your gift and your reward from your Father in heaven. Then it goes down. When you pray, don't pray so everyone can see. But rather, I want you to go to your quiet place. I want you to go to your private place. And I want you to pray to me. Right? Because I know what you need. I I'm here for you. The end, the fasting, same thing. Don't do this. Rather, come to me and receive your reward from me. And the thing is, it's easy from there to say, here's all the things we shouldn't do. We shouldn't be hypocritical. We shouldn't be using God. We shouldn't be perpetuating the patterns of sin that hurt people. We should actually come and submit our hearts to God and be changed and be transformed. But the thing is, how do you do that? How do you even do that? And here's what I'm going to say. I think you do it by being intimate with God. I think you do it by being personal with God. I, I used to be like, hey, I'm going to put like a modern twist on the idea of praying in private. Now I'm like, no, we should pray some in private. I used to think it was like, well, you go to God and in your, in your mind you're just like, hey, I'm doing this for God. And now I'm increasingly convinced that if I give to someone, I should probably retreat and say, God, what do you, what do you love about that person? God, what do you hope for that person? God, change my heart to love that person. And here's a crazy thought, friend. Here's a crazy thought. Perhaps the God that we sing about, that we preach about, that we read about, perhaps that God who says he is alive is actually alive. Perhaps he is actually alive. And perhaps who we are, as we see the vision that he's giving us for our lives in the Sermon on the Mount and going, hey, here's who I want to be. Here's who he's calling me to. Perhaps that destination is not marked by us trying really hard, though I'm sure we are. 
Perhaps it's not us evaluating everywhere that we've been, though we have to. Perhaps it's not us looking at every motivation of our heart, though we need to. Perhaps the most marked change and the most marked characteristic of that road from here to where we're going is not us, but perhaps it's him. Because perhaps every story of the Bible is about him. Perhaps every hero of the faith is only hero of the faith because they displayed him. Maybe the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of your life and the whole story of my life isn't about how much I change or how much I do, but how much I display the love that's already been given to me. And maybe it's, it's that God that's loving me. Maybe it's the presence of that God that has given himself for me that I need to be pursuing more and more. Uh, again, this is where we're going to just end on kind of what we started with here. I'm convinced that we oftentimes live out as modern people the intellectual hope of our faith, and we oftentimes don't live out the spiritual hope of our faith. That when I have suffering, when I go through something, I think that what the Bible is telling me is that I can somehow look at the darkness of the clouds of suffering and I can find a silver line and you just paint all around them. And that rationale, that reasoning is what the Bible's giving me now. And because of Jesus, I can find that reasoning everywhere. When in reality, the Bible gives us a much more beautiful and supernatural vision, which is that in the midst of that suffering, Jesus feels what you feel, that he's with you, that he's, he's joined himself to you, that the Spirit of God is, is in you and has accompanied you, and, and he's right in it. In fact, it says that he's groaning on your behalf to God. And like, this is, that's the vision of the Bible. And the thing is, we take that and we try to apply it in an intellectual way, like we're supposed to understand it, when in reality, I think we're supposed to spiritually experience it, engage it, and walk in it in a way that goes beyond the scope of what our mind can do. And that's why I want us to pray today. Last week we prayed. But my honest desire for you is not that you would walk out of here and think, how can I read the Bible better? My honest desire for you is not that you would walk out of here and go, how can I figure out a way to give without it being for people to see? How can I figure out a way for me to, to fast, or fast at all, uh, and then it not, me not look sad? I don't want to look sad while I fast, God. And I think that that's what God's getting at, that Jesus is up here being like, I really don't want you to look sad while you fast, guys. I really don't want you to play the soundtrack of your giving before your giving, right? I don't want you to do that. When there's really something so much more that he's pointing to, he's pointing to the idea that he wants to be intimate with you, and he wants you to be intimate with him. That all of what's produced in the positive side of doing something in private comes from knowing that there's a source, a real source, not an intellectual source, not one that I reason out, but one that I actually go to and I actually spiritually experience the fact that God is saying, well done. Well done. Good job. I love you. You're mine. I'm going to be very, very honest with you. Me and you and everyone else in this room, so many of us are coming to God and we're saying, I want you to say you're proud of me. And really, we're just working through daddy issues and mommy issues. And we're using God to be dad and to be mom when God wants to be more than dad and more than mom. But we need to tap into him actually being God rather than trying to make him into dad and mom in order to feel the true weight of what it looks like and what it feels like for Jesus to say, well done. Good job.
I love you. You're mine. Because Jesus ain't here. God's not here to, be, to fill in the holes of your parents' failure. He's here to redeem you and to make you new. He's here to make everything new. He's here to make your heart new. He's here to make my heart new. He's here to give me a new identity, to give you a new identity, to make you his son and his daughter, to make me his son. That's what he's here for. And so often, because we're not tapping into the real spiritual, intimate, personal, private side of our faith, and it's just in this reasoning kind of experience, what we can see, what we can taste, what we can feel type of thing, it all of a sudden puts us in a place where God becomes the one that's supposed to be taking the place of mom and dad and every other person that's hurt us, when in reality, he's coming to just completely blow that out of the water. And he's here to do something completely new in you completely new in me. And I believe that. Like, I honestly believe it. Because I cannot tell you how I got to where I am today. I just know that I was a hoodlum and I was a wild boy. And then one day, I was smoking nine times a day, and the next day, I got touched by Jesus in an intimate, personal, powerful, spiritual way, and I didn't do drugs anymore. That's what I know happened. I don't know how it happened. Every inclination and fiber of my being yesterday wanted to participate and partake in X, Y, and Z, and absolutely nothing in me wants to partake in it today. Why? I don't know. How? I don't know. What, what happened? I don't know. I just know I was empty and hurting and aching, and I prayed and I approached God. And it wasn't in a church service. In fact, it was in a church building. But it was, I was only there on like a Tuesday afternoon to pick up an amplifier from the church building. And there was no one else there. It was me and some rink-a-dink chairs and an empty building. And I sat down and I just said, God, help me. And I actually reached out to him in a way that was beyond the scope of being like, teach me, show me, help me understand. I don't know what I need to understand. I just know I need you to help me. I reach out and I'm trying to grab for you in any way that I can. And in the midst of my grabbing, I was held. And I was made new. And my life has never been the same. And I'm not perfect, but I'm, uh, I'm aware that I'm aware of my sin. I'm, I've, I've changed. I can't communicate to you beyond the scope of that. I've changed. And I think it was someone who changed me more than it was me who changed me. In fact, I don't really see any reason to believe that I changed me. But I know he changed me. And that's not a one-time thing. I think my life and your life need to be marked by that reaching out more often. They need to be marked by that, hey, you're here. Not like a book on the shelf, like we talked about earlier. Not like this sort of like, hey, there's a book on the shelf that I'm inspired by and I really like. And I know it's always there and it's always with me. And my inspiration is there with me. But there is a spiritual presence of the almighty God who is with you and, and here to engage with you for you to experience right now. That's why we're going to end today with praying. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And what that means is we're going to do something a little bit different. I want you to experience God. I want you to reach out and try and, and experience Him. And what, what my hope is, is that we would actually do something a little different. Um, we're going to take one minute, again, to just be quiet. And then from there, we're going to work through 
to take, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, similar to how we did a few weeks ago, for those of you that were here. And we're just going to invite God to communicate to us, uh, to touch us. And I want you to talk to God as though he's here. Not like, oh, I'm, you know, uh, I thank God for his X, Y, and Z. It's not third person. I want you to say it in first person or second person. I'm bad at grammar. Thank you. I love you. Right? Be intimate with him. We're going to take that time to do that today. And so we're going to close up there. And we're going to start by, again, I want you to invite you, just be quiet. Be quiet for a while. That was the Lord. Uh, to be quiet for a little bit and uh, settle your mind, your mind on God, and then we'll, we'll start up uh, in the Lord's Prayer shortly after that. Now let's go to the first slide of the, of the prayer. And I want to encourage you to read this with me, and then we're going to spend some time praying over each line. Okay? So if you would join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And now, back in your own prayer time, just thank God for who he is. Thank God for his faithfulness, his character, his love. Spend some time thanking him. Let's go to the second slide. And if y'all would read this with me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So now I just want to invite you to pray for God's rule and reign to become a reality. And so here you can pray for you. Pray that his rule and reign would be true in your heart. But also pray for our community. Pray for Dove Springs. That's the whole reason we exist is to see God glorified for to see his rule and reign come to this community. Ask for it in your household. Ask for it in your community, in your own neighborhood if you don't live here. Ask for it in our country. Ask for it in our world. Let's just go to God and, and pray for his rule and reign to become a reality. God, give us this day our daily bread. I just want you to pray for God's daily provision in your life. And the reality is most of us in here are not going to be struggling for food today. If you are, holler at me. I would love to pay for your food. But the reality is most of us aren't going to be there. And so ask for God to provide the things that you really cannot see a way to get yourself. If there was any part of you that looked and listened to what I was saying today and said, man, I love it when people tell me good job. And I don't think that's wholly wrong. But if you know, I've built my world around someone telling me, bad or good job. In fact, I built my identity on whether someone said good job or whether someone said proud of me. And you just look at the cycle of your life and you're like, I have no idea how to get out of that. Then maybe you just say, God, give me this day, my daily identity. Give me this day, my daily encouragement. Give me this day, my daily affirmation. Give me this day, the provision that you have for me. And let's just pray for his provision. Let's read this slide. Um, next section. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And I just want you to confess your sins and failures to the Lord and forgive people who have wronged you. And if you feel like it's hard to forgive them, ask the Lord to help you forgive them. And thank the Lord that because of the work of Jesus, he's forgiven them. 
even if you can't quite yet. While your attention was already broken by the kids, I'm gonna take advantage of that. We're just gonna move on to the next slide. So. Uh, and then if you would read it with me. Lead us not into temptation. And so just ask God to guide you in godly ways. Uh, as Psalm 23 says, for his namesake. Um, if you read it with me. And deliver us from evil. Pray for God's protection against any of the strategies of Satan. The temptations that you've experienced, the discouragements that you've experienced that feel like they're always set for you and you can't escape them. Just pray that God would deliver you from those. From the sinfulness, from the discouragement, from the whatever the case may be for you. Only you know. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can I just close us with a prayer real quick? This time of prayer with a, with a quick prayer. And thank you, Jesus, I love you. Thank you that only you out of all the kings in the world, none of them can make a simple cafeteria into the throne room. None of them can walk in and fill it with majesty. They can fill it with grace. They can fill it with patience. They can fill it with love. None except you. And yet even as we sit here and stand here in the throne room of God because you were present, you do not leave us kneeling, but in mercy and grace you join us in kneeling. That you would come beside us, that you would join us, that you would come in us as the, in the spirit and just walk with us. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you so much. Help our hearts just be sensitive to the fact that you're here. I love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.